Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 173 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 4 and 5, World's First Space Station, Part 2. From the previous episode, we met the cosmonauts, learned the history of this flight, and discovered the final mission plan for Soyuz 4 and 5. And that plan was... Cosmonaut Shatilov would ride alone into orbit on Soyuz 4 first. Soyuz 5 would be launched the next day with Voyanov commanding and Yelizhev and Krunov assigned to perform the spacewalk. Soyuz 4 and 5 would rendezvous and dock. Then Yelizhev and Krunov would spacewalk from Soyuz 5 to Soyuz 4 and remain there. Next, Soyuz 4 would return to Earth with the three cosmonauts, and then Volyanov and Soyuz 5 would return to Earth as well. Now let's move on to the hardware used for the flights. The Soyuz 7K OK spacecraft was used for both Soyuz 4 and 5. Recall, the Soyuz 7K OK spacecraft was composed of three elements attached end-to-end the orbit module, the descent module, and the instrumentation-slash-propulsion module. The crew occupied the central element, called the descent module. The other two modules were jettisoned prior to re-entry. They were supposed to burn up in the atmosphere, so only the descent module returned to Earth. The Soyuz carrier rocket for both missions was the 11A-511, a 1960s-era Soviet expendable rocket designed by OKB-1 and manufactured by the State Aviation Plant Number no. 1 in Kubushayev. The carrier rocket was used to launch Soyuz spacecraft as part of the Soyuz program, initially on unmanned test flights, followed by the first 19 manned launches of the program. It also had the capability to be used as a ballistic missile. This version of the Soyuz launcher was introduced in 1966. It was derived from the Vostok launcher, which in turn was based on the R-7 intercontinental ballistic missile. It was initially a three-stage rocket with a Block 1 upper stage. The new version introduced an uprated core stage and strap-on boosters, which became standard for all R7-derived launch vehicles. Now, let's turn to the launch of Soyuz 4. 
Cosmonaut Vladimir Shatilov would become the Soviet Union's 13th spacefarer. His home telephone number ended in 13, and the launch itself was set for 1 p.m. Moscow time, which is 1,300 hours, on January 13th, which also happened to be a Monday, which is traditionally regarded by Russians as a most difficult day of the week. Perhaps Shatilov anticipated a little bad luck during the days preceding his mission, but as it happened, Shatilov's only real bad luck transpired shortly after boarding Soyuz 4 on the morning of January 13th. Shatilov was part of the first launch scrub in Soviet space history. Despite temperatures of minus 24 degrees C and gusting winds, the fueling of the R-7 rocket proceeded normally, and Shatilov settled into the spacecraft and began running through his pre-launch systems checks. Minor irritations came in the form of voice communication dropouts whenever Soyuz 4's television camera was used, prompting it to be shut off. Then, with nine minutes to go, a problem was detected within the R-7's gyroscopes, apparently related to the ambient temperature and humidity. By the time the problem was resolved, the launch time had slipped to mid-afternoon, and Shatilov had been lying on his back for over two hours. Moreover, with a mission whose planned duration was almost exactly three days to launch at this time of day, would produce a landing in the half-light of a gloomy midwinter's afternoon on January 16th. This was far from ideal for such a complex flight. Ultimately, mission rules decided the outcome. Fuel temperatures could not fall below minus 2 degrees C at night, or the loss of specific impulse would reduce the R-7's thrust by more than 5%. The managers therefore opted to postpone the launch. Shatilov concealed his disappointment well. As he was extracted from the couch, he quipped that he had just set a new record for the world's shortest space flight and the very first to return to the exact point of liftoff. Years later, he admitted to an interviewer that despite the run of 13s, he was not an overly superstitious man. His quick wit, superstition, and disappointment aside, a number of potentially serious challenges remained. Although Soyuz had been designed to touch down on solid ground and was capable of performing a water landing, unmanned experience had shown that it might not be totally waterproof and indeed could sink. The chances of either Soyuz 4 or 5 splashing down somewhere in the ice-covered Aral Sea were estimated at only 0.003%. But, erring on the side of caution, recovery forces dispatched rescue helicopters and a trio of B-12 seaplanes in readiness for such an eventuality. Finally, at 10.30 a.m. Moscow time on January 14th, 
Soyuz 4 had a perfect liftoff and insertion into a slight elliptical orbit with a perigee of 213 kilometers and an apogee of 224 kilometers. The inclination was 51.7 degrees and the period was 88.8 minutes. For Shatilov, the experience of the rocket launch, the weightlessness of space, and the view of Earth were profound. This is how he described his experience. Quote, when we look into the sky, it seems to us to be endless. We breathe without thinking about it, as is natural, and then you sit in a spacecraft, you tear away from Earth, and within ten minutes you have been carried straight through the layer of air, and beyond there is nothing. The boundless blue sky, the ocean, which gives us breath and protects us from endless black, is but an infinitesimal thin film. Shatilov described weightlessness at the post-flight press conference at Moscow State University. He said, quote, It took me about three to four hours to master it. Unquote. Back on Earth, the Soyuz 5 trio of cosmonauts were watching the launch from Baikonur. Their turn would come the next morning, January 15th, when they were destined to blast off and adopt a passive role as Shatilovs performed the world's first ever docking between two manned spacecrafts. A little more than six hours after launch, at 4.35 p.m., Shatilov adjusted Soyuz 4's orbit, showed television viewers his spacious descent module with two empty extra seats, and then retired into the orbital module for his first night's sleep in space. The next morning at 3 a.m., an AN-12 aircraft from Moscow touched down at Baikonur with an unusual cargo, ten newspapers, and a batch of letters to be delivered to Shatilov by the Soyuz 5 crew in the world's first space mail service. It was yet another effort by the Soviets to generate a space spectacular. Several hours later, the crew took their places in the spacecraft where Volyanov assumed the center seat, flanked by flight engineer Yelizhev and research engineer Krunov. Shortly after 9.30 a.m., with barely 25 minutes to go before launch, a piece of electrical equipment failed, and it looked as if another scrub might occur. Normally, the equipment could only be replaced by lowering the rocket into a horizontal position. But despite the fully fueled state of the R-7 booster and the freezing temperature, engineer Captain Victor Alyation stripped off most of his clothes and squeezed through a narrow hatch into the rocket's bowels to correct the problem. He also noticed that the crew access hatch in the aerodynamic shroud was secured by only three bolts instead of four. Nonetheless, at 10.04 a.m. Moscow time on January 15th, Soyuz 5 roared aloft and a few minutes later was precisely inserted into orbit, trailing Shatilov by some 1,207 kilometers. 
Although Voyanov executed a thrust firing later that day to further refine his orbital parameters, his craft would remain essentially passive during the rendezvous. To Krunov, the first view of Earth was like a jewel of the most intense blue, flecked by white cloud, glimmering in the ethereal blackness of space. The feeling, he said later, was like those final euphoric seconds before embarking on a parachute jump, or the sensation felt by an adrenaline-charged athlete about to perform the stunt of his lifetime. In addition to the joint program with Soyuz 4, the crew had their own specific agenda. Yelizhev was assigned geological and geographical work, and Krunov would be occupied with medical and ionospheric radio propagation experiments. Krunov would also play a key role in the final stages of rendezvous by operating the ships on board Sextant. By mid-morning on January 15th, all four of the cosmonauts, Shatilov, Voyanov, Elijayev, and Krunov, were in orbit. As radio chatter crackled between the two Soyuz and ground control, their call signs were revealed as Amur for Shatilov and Baikal for Voyanov's crew. The two Soyuz established mutual radio contact shortly after Soyuz 5 reached space. On the next day, January 16th, at 8.06 a.m., Shatilov made his final orbital adjustment in preparation for the rendezvous. At that point, Shatilov in Soyuz 4 was partway through his 34th orbit, and Volyanov, Yelishev, and Krunov in Soyuz 5 were on their 18th revolution. At 10.37 a.m., high above the South Pacific, Shatilov switched on his EGLA device to begin the automated rendezvous. The rendezvous ended over Africa at 11.05 a.m. when the separation between the two crafts was just 40 meters. Speaking after the mission, Shatilov recalled that his most important aids during this critical period were his instruments and his own eyes. At 40 meters, he said, Boris Voyanov and he performed several maneuvers in the course of which we changed the relative position of the spacecraft. Further approach and docking were performed within the zone of direct TV contact with the ground stations. To avoid sharp contact with each other, the relative speed of approach was reduced to several centimeters per second. Contact itself came at 11.20 a.m. as Soyuz 4 and 5 flew above the Yevpatorial Control Center in the Crimea. Now that we have docked, let's move on to the spacewalk. The spacesuits worn by the two cosmonauts during their daring ship-to-ship transfer were quite different from the one worn by Alexei Leonov during his spacewalk in March of 1965, which was covered in episodes 55 and 56. On that occasion, the Burkut or Golden Eagle ensemble was stiff and it ballooned dangerously 
as Leonov tried to re-enter the airlock, and by the time he returned inside the Voskhod II cabin, he was drenched in sweat, breathing hard, and exhausted. By contrast, the Yastreb, or Hawk, suit of Yelizhev and Krunov were more flexible, benefiting from a complex array of lines and pulleys for dexterity, and their life support and environmental control units could be worn on either their chest or shins to help them get through the small hatch of the Soyuz orbital module. The spacewalk required a considerable amount of self-awareness and demanded every ounce of energy and stamina that Krunov and Yelizhev could muster. Although Boris Volyanov was on hand to assist them for a while, checking their life support and communications gear, and helping them to secure their gloves, the time inevitably came for him to retire to his couch in Soyuz 5's descent module, seal the hatch, and depressurize the orbital module. It was with this experience, and more than two years of preparation under their belts, that at 12.43 p.m. Moscow time on January 16, 1969, Krunov and Yelizhev finished donning their spacesuits and began the greatest engineering challenge and the biggest thrill of their lives. Krunov was the first man out. He swung open the hatch and floated into the void barely an hour after the docking. The spacewalker's departure was not entirely trouble-free. One of Krunov's oxygen hoses became entangled, and he accidentally closed the tumbler of the suit's ventilator. Although he succeeded in freeing it and solved the problem, the need to help his partner distracted Yelizhev, who forgot to install a movie camera outside the hatch. As a result, the world was denied film of the spacewalk and had to make do with a poor quality video transmission. Yet Krunov and Yelizhev's spacewalk was an impressive feat. By 1.30 p.m., both men were inside Soyuz 4's orbital module, the hatch of which had been automatically cranked open by Shatilov, and then they assumed their new places in the descent module. Not too surprisingly, no evidence of any of these problems appeared in either cosmonaut's official recollections. In fact, Yelizhev's failure to set up the movie camera was saved by Krunov, who assembled a still camera inside Soyuz 4 orbital module. This camera only yielded a few grainy images from the joint mission. Still, both men told a press conference at Moscow State University on January 24 that their Yastreb spacesuit had performed well, the ventilators and heat exchangers worked effectively, and they experienced no fogging of their visors from condensation. This is how Krunov described his spacewalk. He found that the easiest way to move in space was a hand-over-hand progression using rails attached to both spacecraft. He said, quote, Moving along the rails in this way, I approached the camera. 
Then, gripping the rail with one hand, I removed the camera from the bracket and disconnected it from the onboard electric mains. Then, walking on hands in the same manner, I moved along the outer surface of the assembled space station and entered the compartment of Soyuz 4. End quote. Krunov's misleading reference to the combination as a space station was endorsed by Yelizhev, who went further by stressing that, quote, the choice of the method of transfer through open space rather than by means of a tunnel was not an accidental one, end quote. Not everyone in the Western world was fooled. Time magazine pondered the Soviet space station ambitions, but American astronaut Deke Slayton, for one, remained skeptical. In his autobiography entitled Deke, Slayton pointed out that the space station comparison was sort of a stretch and speculated that the Soviets were simply trying to upstage Apollo 9, an American rendezvous docking and crew transfer flight scheduled for launch several weeks later. On the Apollo mission, however, crew members were to transfer internally between their two spacecraft. Time magazine further pondered about future Soviet space plans by asking the question, would this four-compartment version lead next to a roomy orbiting laboratory? Many observers, though, had a more fundamental question. As Flight International pointed out on January 23rd, quote, It is not clear whether cosmonauts can traverse from one vehicle to another through a tunnel joining the two vehicles, end quote. Now, this was the crux of the debate over whether Soyuz 4 and 5 represented a true space station. Left unsaid by the Soviet news agency TASS was the reality that those four rooms, the two orbital modules and two descent modules, though electrically and mechanically mated, did not permit internal transfer from one spacecraft to the other. At 3.55 p.m. Moscow time, four hours and 35 minutes after docking, the two spacecraft separated and Shatilov, in his Soyuz 4, fired its thrusters to pull away. The next morning, Shatilov initiated re-entry, and he, Yelizhev, and Krunov descended through a wintry blizzard and thumped onto the snowy Kazakh steep at 9.53 a.m., located southwest of the coal-mining city of Karaganda. Shatilov, whose performance during the rendezvous and docking was later described as exemplary, became the first cosmonaut to maintain a running commentary during the ballistic fall to Earth using a VHF antenna embedded in the hatch of the descent module. At the instant of touchdown, Shatilov had spent a little less than three days in space, while Yelizhev and Krunov concluded missions of almost 48 hours apiece. Despite landing in a blizzard with 24 to 30 inches of snow on the ground 
and temperatures of minus 37 degrees C, all three men were safe and were picked up by helicopter within minutes. Only one item remained to complete the mission, the return of Volyanov in Soyuz 5 safely to Earth. However, that was easier said than done. The main concern over Soyuz 5 return was anti-cyclonic conditions at the landing site, coupled with frigid temperatures hovering at close to minus 35 degrees C. The plan called for Volyanov to manually orient Soyuz 5 for retrofire and make his landing at 9.30 a.m. Moscow time. After rehearsing the steps for this procedure during his final orbit, he reported he could not do it within the allotted nine minutes. Nevertheless, he was told to try. Commands were also provided for a second automatic retrofire in the event that the manual effort failed. The intended retrofire time came at 8.48 a.m., but eight minutes later, Volyanov reported that he had been unable to complete the orientation manually and controllers prepared to uplink the commands for an automatic burn on the next orbit. It would seem that weather conditions on the ground also contributed to the delay. Reentry finally got underway high above the Gulf of Guinea at 10.26 a.m., but soon it became alarmingly clear that the spacecraft was violently tumbling. Having already lost Vladimir Komarov during a bungled return to Earth two years earlier, it was obvious to the staff at Yevpatoria that another cosmonaut might very soon fall victim to the hazards of spaceflight. What was not known at the time, however, was that as the reentry began, Soyuz 5's instrument module was still securely attached to the descent module. For Volyanov, the implications of this were potentially catastrophic. Under normal conditions, six seconds after retrofire, a series of pyrotechnics should have sheared the two apart, enabling the bell-shaped descent module to adopt its correct re-entry orientation with the heavy protected base of the descent module facing into the direction of travel to shield Volyanov from the burn of 5,000 degrees C caused by frictional heat. For this very reason, the base was coated with a 6-inch thickness of ablative material, half of which was designed to char, melt, and peel away during re-entry, thus safeguarding the descent module from the heat. Unfortunately, the final half-hour of Soyuz 5 was far from normal. With the instrument module still in place, the base's thermal shield was covered and unable to fill its purpose. And worse still, the combined spacecraft was forced to adopt the most aerodynamically stable orientation with the dome of the heavy descent module and its thin hatch facing into the direction of travel and about to feel the full force of searing hypersonic re-entry. Unlike the base, the top of the descent module was coated with just an inch of a blader. 
since the heat of reentry was predicted to char away at least three times as much off the base, a reentry in this altitude would likely end in catastrophe. At 10.32 a.m., Stockholm radio analyst Sven Gran and his colleague Chris Wood, based in Fiji, noted that shortwave communication signals from Soyuz 5 had abruptly stopped. An instant, normally assumed to be the time of separation of the instrument module, and in all probability, it was the time when the separation pyros fired. On his website, Gran noted that the electrical connection had been separated between the orbital and instrument modules, but not their mechanical connection. Aboard Soyuz 5, Volyanov heard the pyrotechnics fire, but was stunned when he glanced through his window to see the solar panels and whip antennas of the steel-attached instrument module. According to Gran, the cosmonaut reported what he saw through a coded radio channel to ground controllers. When they realized what had happened, or more accurately, what had not happened, several flight controllers buried their faces in their hands. One officer removed his cap, dropped three rubles in it, and passed it along the line. Within minutes, it had filled with coins for Volyanov's young family. The cosmonaut was effectively plummeting back to Earth, nose first, with the least protected section of his craft exposed to the greatest thermal stress. Moreover, he was exposed to G-forces in excess of nine times their normal terrestrial load. Against such overwhelming odds, it seemed that Boris Volyanov's fate was sealed. Not until 1996, almost three decades after the event, was Volyanov finally able to speak publicly about what happened during that terrifying final half hour. Rather than being pushed back in his couch, as would be expected in a normal base-first re-entry, Volyanov was pulled outward against his harness. Yet, he still managed to repeat, No panic! No panic! over and over again. In what he assumed would be the final minutes of his life, he continued to report his status into an onboard voice recorder and even tore the last pages from his rendezvous notebook, jamming them into his pockets in the vain hope that they might somehow escape incineration. From his couch, he could only watch helplessly as tongues of flame licked at the descent module's windows and washed over the cabin. The thin hatch directly in front of his eyes visibly bulged inward under the tremendous heat and pressure. All of Soyuz 5's hydrogen peroxide propellant had been expended shortly after the onset of re-entry, when the automated system struggled fruitlessly to orient the descent module. Gradually, the intense heat, a heat which Volyanov clad only in a light flight garment rather than a pressurized suit, could physically feel, began to melt the gaskets which sealed the hatch and the cabin started to fill with noxious fumes. He clearly heard a roar as the propellant tanks in the instrument module exploded with such force 
that the crew hatch was forced inward and then upwards like the bottom of a tin can. Together with a prolonged and disturbing grinding sound as the stress of deceleration took their toll on the unusual configuration. Finally, the struts holding the instrument module severed and the two modules separated and the descent module offset center of mass caused it to assume a base first orientation. It tumbled violently as it fell ballistic. The descent ended at 11.08 a.m. with a touchdown close to Orenburg, hundreds of miles off target in the snowy Ural Mountains. Despite having endured and survived one of the space program's most terrifying reentries, the cosmonaut's ordeal was not over. Heat damage and tumbling had caused the Soyuz 5 parachute lines to entangle, and as a result, their canopies only partially inflated. Moreover, one of the solid fuel soft landing rockets in the module's base failed to fire resulting in a particularly hard touchdown. So hard, in fact, that Volyanov was torn from his couch and thrown across the cabin, breaking several teeth. As the noise and vibration of the last half hour was replaced by absolute silence, stillness, and bitter cold of a late winter morning in the Urals, he could reflect on how lucky he was to be alive. The temperature outside was close to minus 40 degrees C, and the superheated metallic surfaces of the spacecraft now hissed in the snow. Volyanov knew that he was far from his planned landing site and would have to wait several hours for rescue. On the other hand, spending hours in a Soyuz 5 in sub-zero conditions would mean certain death. He clambered outside and, spitting blood and bits of teeth into the snow as he went, set off in the direction of a distant column of smoke until he reached a peasant's cottage where he took refuge. Knowing that the rescue party would find the spacecraft and then follow the tracks of his boot prints and blood. Through a mouthful of broken teeth, the traumatized Voyanov had just four words for his rescuers. Is my hair gray? You would think the story ends there, but there is just a little more. On January 22nd, just four days after Voyanov's hard landing, the cosmonauts were placed in mortal danger again. Moscow wanted to honor the new heroes, and while the cosmonauts were traveling to the traditional Kremlin banquet from Vinukovo Airport in a motorcade, right at the Kremlin's gates, someone hoping to kill Brezhnev fired on the motorcade. But he fired on the wrong vehicle. Eight shots were fired at the car carrying Beregovoy, Leonov, Nikolaev, and Tereshkova. Their driver was killed, and a motorcyclist in the motorcade escort received a minor injury. But the celebration at the Kremlin took place as if nothing had happened. In conclusion, for all the doubts over the validity of the space station claims, 
Soyuz 4 and 5 did become the first manned flight to exchange crew members in orbit. Had this daring and intensely risky mission been attempted as intended two years earlier, it would have cleared a major hurdle in the Soviet goal of reaching the moon. But, by the end of 1968, Apollo 8 successfully orbiting of the moon made the joint flight of Soyuz 4 and 5 look to the rest of the world like a stunt and a mere shadow of what it might have been. Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.